in prison, white men are feared more than black men. Do you know why? Why? Because everybody knows the white man did it. You know, I don't because... know if that's I don't know if that's that funny. <laughs> What's going on, everybody? This is Thomas Freemy. This is the Thomas Freemy TV and podcast show, welcoming you back to yet another great discussion with a Mr. Marvin Cotton Jr. Marvin is an exoneree. He uh, spent 20 years in prison for a crime he did not commit, had nothing to do with, a completely innocent man. And this is the discussion that we're going to have is how how you get caught up into that how these circumstances happen to an individual, and then how do you deal with that? How do you deal with being incarcerated away from your family, dealing with the life-to-life, the day-to-day, and just seeing things dissolve around you all because of you being in prison, innocent? You know, how do you deal with something like that? So these are the discussions we're going to get into. Um, first and foremost, I, I pray that everybody is blessed. They're having a great day. It's deep, it's philosophical, and it's real. So this is what's going on in America. This is why I provide the channel that I do and the information that I do so that we can educate ourselves on being better people, better citizens, so that we can unite and be a strong country, we the people. Enjoy the conversation uh pay attention listen to the message and first and foremost just give gratitude that this man is home that he is not still sitting in prison trying to fight his innocence as many others are and we're working on trying to get these people home too so let me not ramble on anymore let's get right into the discussion because i know you guys are probably already fast forwarded through all of this which is cool enjoy the show take care of yourself be your best self Mr. Marvin, Mr. Marvin, Mr. Marvin, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Man, thank you for coming on. I'm honored, man. I'm I'm honored to have you on the show. Um, first and foremost, I'm I'm thankful that you're home, man, and and you get to to reestablish life for for what it is now. Um, I wanted to start this discussion with a, a joke that I heard not too long ago, and what the joke was was that. In prison, white men are feared more than black men. Do you know why? Why? Because everybody knows the white man did it. Now, I don't know how true of a statement that is. You know, I don't know, because, if, that's, I don't know if that's that funny. <laughs> but 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 this is this is the thing is that the, the context of the joke is that we all know the stigma. You you understand what I'm saying? We all know, we all know the facts and the truth, but yet still it's taken so long for things to, to fix itself. Right. Well, you know, you know, the thing about the justice system is in prison, um, you know, of course you have a lot of blacks, um, um, some of which should be there and some of which should not be there. Some of which are over sentenced. Um, You have the brown that, some of which should be there, some of which should not be there at all, and, and some of which are over-sentenced. 
Um, and when it comes to the whites, you don't see many rich white men in prison at all. You see poor white men. You see poor people in prison. Um, so that's like the common thread that goes through um, the prison system. You see poor black, poor brown, and poor white. Um, and 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 I've I believe that I've met many innocent black, brown, and white men um, in prison. I've also met black, brown, and white men that have outgrown their crime and should no longer be there because they're 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 really exemplifying um, the potential that they had in them, and they've outgrown where they were at 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. Well, that's so true. And then you have individuals that, that are the same 20, 30 true. years later. Or worse. Or, or worse. worse. Definitely or worse. And, and um, I've seen that personally myself. Now, me, I, I only did 13 years in the feds. That's the longest stretch that I've done. But I've been in and only? out. That's a lot of time, brother. Well, it, it is. Any time in prison is a lot of time. But the reason why I bring that up is because it wasn't until I got to the feds, you know, I'm, I'm thinking 13 years is a long, long time where I was sentenced to, to 17 and a half for a first time nonviolent drug offense. No dope. It was a ghost ghost ship conspiracy. People were just telling on everybody and I, and I went to trial and I ended up getting 210 months. And I'm thinking like, this is a long friggin time. But it wasn't until I got in there and 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 started realizing that when I'm sharing my story with people, they're like, how the hell did you get that little bit of time for going to trial? You know what I mean? And we're getting 20 and 30 years, 40 years, 80 years, you know, and it was it was then is and that was maybe three or four years in fighting my case or whatnot and seeing the discrepancies in in uh, just in in the courts you know as i'm doing my legal work just going through and i'm seeing like me and this guy's got the same exact charge it's the same exact scenario almost but this person got 50 years you know and and i started seeing that so the question is because you brought up a great point and this is a point that i really want people to to really stress and understand the fine line between racism and classism and you brought up a great point, you know. So in your opinion, your 20 years of masterful experience of prison life, what is your opinion? Well, we know that this country was built um, um, through racism. It was built through uh, slavery and a lot of the, the thinking that went into the construction of this company made its way into every system of this country. So three, 400 years later, uh, nature of that thing. And although you have a lot of good people that works in these systems, these systems were set up with certain ideas in mind. So we know that the justice system um, is one of the major pillars in this country. And it is disproportionately and wrongfully um, um, uh, used against black and brown and poor whites, um, uh, specifically with blacks being 13, 14% of this nation's population, but nearly 50% of this nation's prison population. Um, you know, those numbers 
those numbers don't add up. I don't care how you cut it. Those numbers do not add up. Um, so, so we know that wrongful convictions, like I'm from Michigan, and um, there's been 31 um, uh, guys exonerated in a, a, approximately like the last three years. About 27 are black. It's not that, you know, white men are not, you know, filling out these applications and trying to get the conviction integrity unit and um, some of these um, universities to look at their case. But in a lot of the cases where you see um, police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, um, it is disproportionately aimed at black and brown. And, 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 and then if you happen to be poor on top of that, you get a different slice of the justice system um, than everybody else. That's just, uh, that's, that's the reality of it. Now, I know me saying that, um, you know, a lot of people can relate, but what I found like in this space, you know, your voice saying the exact same thing is a lot louder than mine, you know, because people have to really come to terms and listen to you like, okay, this is, this is, a, this is a white man, um, uh, speaking this cold, um, um, uh, this cold, dry truth, you know, um, and you've seen it. You you spent time in a federal prison. You spent time in a federal prison. What did that population look like? Hmm. You know, what 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 was the percentages in that population? Um, and, and I'm only asking that as it relates to our criminal justice system. Like you said, you met people with the exact cases as yours but they receive three times more time than you. Where did you see that mo most often at? You know, you have the real life experience um, of prison. You know, should you have even gotten the time that you've gotten? Probably not. If you were rich, would you have even been to prison? Hmm. Well, this is why this is why I want people to understand that when you get charged, when you get indicted, you have you have two two classifications, if if you will. I'm probably saying this wrong. I would need my, my attorney to really break this down. But you have two sentencing factors. You have one that is incarceration to say you do the time or you have a fine and they both amount to the same equal justice in their eyes. You could either pay this fine, which is in my case was, was like, I think $5 million or something equivalent to that, or spend X amount of time in prison that equates to that dollar amount. This is how these people factor these things in, you know, but it's, again, it's, I, I agree with everything that you're saying and you're saying it so articulately that, that the people I feel can really try to see what it is that we're saying. And I feel like, yes, a large proponent of of the prison population is black and brown just as our poor communities are because black and brown has been left behind for 400 years where else would you expect them to be but other than the poor community trying you know fighting and gnashing and just trying to survive so these poor communities are the ones that are being ravished with these conspiracy charges and these these bogus charges that you, you're allowing these psychopathic cops just to come in and just because these cops aren't in the rich neighborhoods. They send they know that these people are crazy and they're sending, but they need power. They need numbers. They need force. So they have to take in what they can. It's kind of like when Uber came out and they were just bringing in 
all the drivers they could. And what, ha- what ended up happening? People were being robbed, raped from the Uber drivers, so they had to cut back. It's the same principle. They need force. And I think one of the unintended consequences of um, the prison um, the prison system is I don't believe in the beginning they intended for it to be an industry the way that it is. Um, you know, I believe that it was, you know, intent, um, initially uh, meant to kind of control and, 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 and control and punish and, you know, uh, marginalize. But I never I don't believe that they thought it would grow into an industry um, like like General Motors for Chrysler, because the, 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 the Department of Corrections, that, that's what it is. It is an industry where a lot of people eat from that plate, they eat from that table. So talking about justice and rolling back some of the illegal and unconstitutional tactics that's practiced by our government, its officials and its agents, uh, talking against that, that's a problem because there's a lot of people that eat from that table. Well, yes, but you know, it's, it's my understanding <clears throat> from, from my studies and my research of how all of this crap started was we know, we know as, when slavery was coming to an end, was at the the height of the steel world, right? We were we were building faster, industrializing faster than any other nation in the world. And a large population of that building was slaves. And so when, when, when Abraham Lincoln ended slavery, you just cut out almost the whole workforce of all of this. And they had to keep that workforce going. So they they devised a plan to keep the black man enslaved through peonage, right? They, they, they created a, a, a system of peonage where uh, if you didn't have a job, you would, go to, you would go to prison. A black man, if a black man didn't have a job, if anybody didn't have a job, they would go to prison, but no black men were being hired. So they're going to prison in order to pay off that debt. And where were they putting them? On the railroad. So again, I'm, I say that I'm a proponent for reparations and I'm a proponent that these, these in, industries, some of them that you named, need to start giving a portion to the black community because if it wasn't for the black community and the prison complex system, these companies wouldn't be who they are, especially along the whole Sunbelt. You know how many, you know how many, you know how many people died building these these multi-billion dollar industries now the stories the stories are horrendous and and the thing of it is is they would work us to death marvin they would work us 16 18 hours until we died literally in the bunk and they would take us out and replace us and work that person the same way and throw us out back in in a down here in florida we're finding there's so many graveyards that are being found down here of black black people black graveyards that they've built houses on buildings on just unmarked graves they're finding down here in florida so it's 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 crazy but it's the truth like you and i say i say what i say because it's facts and if i'm going to be a man of truth within myself to be closer to god because that's my ultimate position i don't give a damn what Billy Bob is saying down the road, you ain't got nothing to do with my afterlife. So 
why the hell am I listening to you? You see what I'm saying? It's what I know to be truth. And I'm going to speak it as I see it. And it, it just is what it is. And we have to fix it. And we have to be honest about where this came from, because as we're going to get into now in your story, you as Marvin Cotton have one life, one life. And you've given a third of that to these people for something that you didn't even do. Yes, sir. Tamujin Kinsu up there in Michigan, 37 years. And his trial is ridiculous. His attorney was on crack, working with undercovers, setting up crack. It, it, the whole thing is what, what they call in legal terms a kangaroo court. And he's still in prison. And we're praying and we're hoping, and I'm a big advocate of him. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that that case is resolved soon. So tell me about who Marvin Cotton, the boy, was. Who was you as a child? Who did you want to be growing up? What were some of your dreams and things of that nature? Well, you know, I grew up in Detroit. I was born and raised in Detroit. Um, a single mother, um, a father, um, you know, chasing drugs and addictions. Um, so I, I learned early on that, you know, I didn't want to be a drinker or a smoker. Um, you know, uh, seeing him, seeing his example actually taught me in reverse to where I knew what I didn't want to be. So um, I was kind of immune to peer pressure growing up. Um, you know, you know, every, you know, all of my friends are drinking and smoking uh, weed and, you know, marijuana and it, it never fazed me. I didn't mind being the only person, um, you know, in my circle that that wasn't indulging. However, growing up in the streets of Detroit, I grew up in a real rough neighborhood. Um, I was a street guy. I was pretty heavy into the streets. Um, um, I dropped out of school in the, in the 12th grade, um, you know, getting deeper and deeper into the streets. Um, um, I think I always had a good heart. I just didn't have the guidance or the knowledge to, to, to really do what I wanted to do. So I did what I knew I do. I did what I grew up around, um, um, had a bit of an ego. And, um, I think my ego actually started some things for me where I had some conflict with some police officers. They broke in my house. Um, they broke in my house one day and they were looking for, um, uh, a gun that somebody has stole from a police officer. Um, uh, a friend of mine has stole some guns, broken the police officer house, stole some guns. I didn't know anything about that, um, but he brought one of the guns to me and um, he sold me the gun. I ended up taking the gun and, and, and selling it to somebody else. So when the police found out who broke in a house, they went and kidnapped him. Um, you know, all off of the, all, you know, all this was off the record. It wasn't like they followed any official channels in order to investigate, um, investigate, you know, the, the missing guns or anything. I think he stole like six, seven guns from them, but they were only interested in finding this one, the one that he had brought to me. Mm -hmm. And when they came to my house, they ended up, you know, um, coming in and, um, looking for this gun and, you know, they tore up everything. And, you know, of course, you know, me, you know, being a street guy, I'm sticking to those rules. Like, you know, I don't have a gun. I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, if y'all going to arrest me, arrest me. I, I had I had enough knowledge 
at that point to know that they wasn't supposed to be in my house without a warrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, you know, take me to jail, take me to jail because I knew that they probably couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, How old I, was I you? Knew, uh, I was 20 years old. 20. Okay. Yeah, I was 20 years old. And, um, so they stayed there for a few hours, you know, tearing stuff up and took some things, um, of mine. Um, they didn't find the gun. Of course, I didn't tell them who I sold the gun to, but they left me, um, their card and said, listen, go get the gun. We give you a thousand dollars for the gun back. Um, we give you a thousand dollars for the gun. I know that the gun wasn't worth that. So I knew that they really wanted this gun. Maybe, you know, it can be traced back to them in some kind of way. And they didn't, they didn't, they didn't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my ego, I went and filed a complaint and I used the card that they gave me in order to file the complaint with the internal affairs. Um, I didn't know at the time that that complaint was going to really snowball and turn into something huge, um, uh, because the officers that broke in my house, they were uh, pretty high ranking, uh, pretty high ranking police officers, um, um, w- with the, with the Northwest uh, of Detroit raid team. So they were like sergeants and, um, mm. you know, pretty high ranking, um, detectives and, um, you know, internal affairs got involved, that ball started rolling and eventually officers were indicted behind, um, breaking into my house. But in between them being indicted and them breaking into my house, the harassment started. I was being arrested for no reason. I was being picked up for no reason. Um, they would arrest me, let me go, arrest me, keep me for a couple of days, let me go. They're on arrest you, me. on you, on you, yeah. Like watching you know, everything you're doing. I couldn't do anything. They see my car somewhere, they on me. Uh, we got to the point where I just start running. You know, I'm not doing nothing. Um, uh, you know, it, but I'm running. So, so let me ask you. Let me ask yes. you. Let me ask you because in 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 this is serious now because in in that mental landscape that you're in every day you're waking up knowing that you have police following you on you right and you're trying to move throughout every day of your life as as just anxious anxiety over your shoulder looking over your shoulder and and things of that nature because of these cops that are are you know constantly trying to bust you for something yeah yeah did you ever feel like they were did you ever feel like they were trying to pin anything on you you know I thought they were going to kill me. Mm-hmm. I never thought that they were going to um, pin something on me. I thought they were going to kill me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one thing, one thing police officers that's, you know, they know how to do whether they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. They know how to put pressure on people. You know, that's like, and they train and they know how to keep the pressure up. Um, and, and, and they kept the pressure up on me, even though I wasn't doing anything. They were just mad that I filed this complaint. Um, but they were, they was ramping the, the pressure up. So in my mind, I'm like, they're going to try to kill me. So this is, my mind went there. My mind didn't go to, um, as soon as they got an opportunity, um, um, they would influence or put a case on me. Let's get into, let's get into exactly now that we have that and we have that understanding, the, the, the occurrence, the, the day of the occurrence. So what happened on this day? Well, um, um, in 2001, January 24th, 2001, a friend of mine was murdered. Um, and the, 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 about 
three weeks later, after after he was murdered, um, the police picked me up. Uh, you know, I call it kidnapping. Um, but they picked me up and took me down to the police station and, you know, questioned me. Um, you know, I was taught, um, you know, early in early in life, you know, you never talk to the police whether, you know, you did something or not. And and I hadn't done anything, um, you know, but I, you know, didn't didn't answer any questions or talk to him or anything like that. I never thought that I would be charged um, for the murder of somebody that I was cool with, for the murder of somebody that I was friends with. And, you know, you know, you know, we hung out and hung with, you know, with women and got money together and 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 and, and everything. Um, and maybe a couple of days, two or three days after I was arrested, um, you know, I was charged with first degree murder. Now, the things that led up to me being charged, um, the prosecutors star witness, for lack of better words, um, he had made a few different statements. His name's Kenneth Lockhart. He had made a few different statements and his initial statements, his initial um, uh, uh, statements, he never said anything about me, he never said my name. He never implicated me um, in any type of crime or anything. But three weeks later, he did. Now, um, you know, for your listeners um, in Michigan, there's a new unit in the prosecutor office called the Conviction Integrity Unit. Um, I'm out of Wayne County. So what the Conviction Integrity Unit did, the prosecutor's office, is when they reopened my case, they started investigating every single component. Um, one of the things that they discovered was that this star witness, um, Kenneth Lockhart, um, the information that he put on his statement, they got, got the warrant, got me arrested, got me sent to trial. The information that was used, the homicide detective actually gave him that information after he went and got this information from um, some drug dealer who got the information from Lord knows who. So you have, you know, um, third, fourth party. Hearsay, hearsay on top of hearsay. Absolutely. And they went and took this information to this witness. um, And, and this is what they use. Now I hired a private investigator many years ago. And one of the things that he were able, he was able to get on recording. He recorded the lead investigator uh, without the lead investigator knowing he was being recorded. In fact, the lead investigator didn't even know that the private investigator worked for me. He was under the impression that the private investigator was working for the prosecutor's office. Um, and so he talked freely and he told uh, he told the lead investigator that he was investigating the case and um, that I was hiring lawyers and I was in a good position in order to get out of prison. Um, and he was trying to stop that. Mm. And the lead investigator just talked freely. And one of the things that he said was um, this witness didn't know anything. This witness didn't see anything. So we had to do what we had to do. Um, so, so one of the things that they did was he went and got, you know, uh, this gossip from this drug, this drug dealer um, and then took that back to the witness and had the witness um, uh, put it in his statement as if it was firsthand knowledge from himself. And that's what they use. So, you know, that, that information, um, you know, that sequence of events, you know, didn't come from me. This sequence of events comes from the prosecutor office, the same office that prosecuted me. <sighs> 
Well, how was you found guilty, though? Did you go to you went to well, trial? Absolutely. Now, that information wasn't known before trial. That ah. information, that information is like literally from the C. That's what old. the CIU turned up. Right. That's so. So is, is it is it fair so, to say that the CIU is is the reason why you're sitting here in front of me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and another piece of um, 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 another piece of evidence that was used against me was a jailhouse informant. Um, you know, I don't like to call him a jailhouse informant of uh, because, you know, that that suggests that he actually has something to inform. But um, his his whole statement and his whole testimony uh, was fabricated. Um, but he recanted all these years later and come to find out that he, too, got information from detectives in order to come in and testify um, against me. So the case against me was manufactured and um, really manipulated through law enforcement. Yeah, Jesus, man. This, and, yeah. and this is why I stayed yeah. my ass in Florida. Florida's yeah, not too a, much better, but ooh, yeah, I had Michigan. A, I, had a I had a four-headed monster. Um, you, you, you have an off-duty police officer in my case. Um, so, you know, you have off-duty police officer whom um, by all intents and purposes was um, a suspect. Um, you have the lead investigator, which I just told you about. Um, you also had a detective in my case that was convicted several months after my trial for 13 counts of bank robbery. Um, and then you had another detective in my case that's been sued on multiple occasions. You have DUIs, um, just um, was forced to retire, got caught with an illegal gun. He's a police officer, got caught with an illegal gun. Um, and, you know, these are the, the, the officers and detectives that I had involved in my case. How, well, let me ask this as, a, as sort of a, a time reference. So all the harassment that you was getting from the cops, how frequent was that leading into this murder? I mean, was, was you still being harassed like every day from these cops leading into the murder or did it back off some or? Well, I, 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 filed, I filed a complaint. Um, um, I complained a few times, but I filed a, a, a second complaint. Mm. Um, and, and that actually stopped the harassment. To, it got quiet. It got unusually mm. quiet. But the harassment lasted months and months. Um, it started um, in the summer of 2000. You know, I was arrested okay. and charged the, the, early the next year in 2001. How did you feel, Marvin, knowing that you had nothing to do with murdering your, your best friend? Well, not your best friend, but a good friend. And and but did you feel like you were just in a in a position that was unwinnable? It, it, it felt like a dream. It felt uh, you're very Surreal. numb when yeah, you're very numb when when reality takes such a shift that you can't even your faculties can't even compute what's going on. Um, like like what? So so you don't really know how you feel in those moments because it's so fuzzy, um, it's so numb. Um, just like when they introduced the jailhouse informant in my case, um, that was four days before trial. You know. They introduced him four days before trial. So, you know, those moments, I can only distinguish 
you know, being charged, um, um, going to trial, finding out about the jailhouse informant, even being released. I can only describe those moments as like a numbness that it's, it's hard for you to really, um, um, really connect with reality because it's just, it's so overwhelming and so unreal. Like, like, like what's going on. Um, but when they introduced the jailhouse informant, um, you know, growing up in the neighborhood, you expect um, for police to use certain tactics. So mm-hmm. being charged, although I was numb, um, after a while, after I got off into the fight, I kind of understand, okay, I, I kind of understand why they coming at me. I understand why, 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 why they want to hurt me. Um, but when they start doing things like, um, you know, when I start hearing testimony from witnesses, I'm like, hold on, this is so unreal that now I see that they're willing to do anything in order to put me in prison or do anything. Anything. To um, anything. So, so, so imagine yourself um, and your viewers, imagine yourself um, being a, in an already an impossible situation. and all of the people that's holding all of the power and all of the pieces, they already in a position of power, but yet they're cheating and then preventing you from even putting forth the very best defense that you can. You, you know, so, so, you know, how I felt in those days um, probably has, has really um, grown me into the man that I am today, but man, I, I can't even put it into words because at a certain point, how do you describe pain? Mm. At a certain point, like, how do you put a, a certain level of pain and hurt and disbelief into words? Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you, Marvin, for, for, for sharing that. And like you and me and so many of us, when we try to explain this experience, we stutter, we, we grasp for words because... Like I, I explained to my viewers, trying to explain this type of experience is like a Holocaust survivor trying to explain their experience or, you know, a, a person that's been in slavery trying to explain what slavery is like a person. You just cannot grasp the amount of pressure and stress. And, and as you said, we're just we're just floating, you know, I, the week before because halfway through my trial, I knew that I didn't stand a chance. Just everything that you just said. I knew halfway through trial, these people are getting up on the stand line, making up whatever they wanted to make up. You know, people I've never even seen before in my life up here talking about I'm at a party with filled with people and I'm handing them garbage bags filled with cocaine and just the craziest stuff. And I'm just sitting there, like you said, and I have to just sit there at this table and be like, I'm, I'm looking at, can he say that? You know, lawyers like, no, nah, no, nah, it's OK. Are you going to object? There's no objection right now. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It's my own fault because I'm ignorant, you know, of the law. But trying to explain that it, the week before my trial, people are. Everything's going to be OK, but I was just on a cloud. I didn't hear anything. Everything was like Charlie Brown, you know, won't, won't, won't. Absolutely. I just I didn't Absolutely. I didn't feel see no anything all i knew was man i'm going to prison you know what i mean i'm i'm going to prison and i can't stop this like i don't want to be on this train no more and it's not stopping 
and you're sitting in this room listening to these white people, right? Just sit here and talk about me in such a degrading fashion. You know what I mean? And it was all because I, I essentially came from the hood. And, and they were painting a picture that I should have known better. You know, the detectives are getting up there talking about um, the prosecutor asked, you know, when the first time you heard Thomas Thomas's um, voice, what did you think? Oh, the first person I thought of was Eminem, you know, and, and how he acts and, and, and things. And this wow. is what they're saying. And so this is the picture. This was 2003 when I went to trial. So so they're painting this picture of me just being a white kid in a place that I didn't belong. You see what I'm saying? And it's just trying to get people to understand that you did a better job articulating it than me. You really did. And it's, it's just, it's something that people cannot fathom, you know? And, 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 and the long-term effects, um, you know, the long-term effects of experiencing um, trauma like that, um, you know, pain like that is it disconnects you to where, um, you know, I don't grieve properly now, you know, I'm so mm -hmm. disconnected from things sometimes that, um, you know, I could be in a room full of people that's, um, you know, drowning in sorrow and I can't connect with that, you know, um, because I, I, I was in an environment where I had all of this unjustified things coming at me mm -hmm. and I had to find a way to numb that. So now when I'm in, in, in normal environments where it should be okay to grieve and cry and experience life as it is, it's difficult to do. And you don't have to do it. I mean, it's, it's just, if, and that's, and, and again, these are some of the pressures that life puts on us because we're expected to feel a certain way. And when we don't feel that way, we, we tend to think that something is wrong with us. And it's just not that way. We just have different experiences. And it's just like you said, I've seen people stabbed to death in front of me. So when you're sitting here talking about your, your, your cut, I'm sorry, but it's, you know, I'm sure it hurts and we'll fix it up or whatnot, but what, what, what do you, what do you want? I've seen, you know, so right. it's, it's dealing with that interaction. It's like, I just had a conversation with a, on another podcast and we were talking about PTSD and we were talking about PTSD uh, in the military, these guys, these soldiers coming home. And it's like, I, I said, but it's different, you know, in the military, your PTSD is more dealing with the unknown. You, you don't know when, what you're seeing going on around you is going to happen to you. It could happen to you at any moment, your next step. You could, you could stay. So that PTSD is not only seeing that, but, but the pressure and the stress of knowing it, you could be next in prison. As I explained, I have in my cell, a six, five, 280 pound, uh, uh, white dude that's been on meth his whole life. And his brain, his brain is just fried out and he's schizophrenic and he's been off his pills for three days. And he's talking about he's hearing somebody is, is out to kill him. And I know he carries shanks on him all the time. So it's that kind of PTSD, him jumping on me and knowing that this dude is out of his mind in this moment. How the hell am I going to get this guy up off me? That kind of PTSD. And you and I, 
deal with that all day, every day, for years on years on years on years. Not no one tour, two tours. In your case, 20 years. So how was your experience? Now, you're, you're going from a shift. Again, again, this is something that people don't understand. You're going from this, this haze of cloud that you've been in, just this spiral of events that happen so quickly that you can't even comprehend what's happening to your life, to being thrown in prison, a maximum security, I'm sure, for your charge at, at, at how old? 20 years old? Yeah, 20, 21 at that time. Explain this to me, man. Explain yeah, me your thought uh, process. Uh, you know, you know, being in that type of environment, you know, you have expectations like you describe somebody being stabbed to death in front of you. You know, one of the the you know expectations of your peers around you. I've seen people get stabbed um, so many times I couldn't even count. But mm-hmm. you're sitting in a child hall or the dining um, the dining room eating and somebody gets stabbed in front of you, you still got to eat your food or you're going to be hungry that night. You know, and it's not like you can just jump up and say, Oh my God, somebody get help. He's being stabbed over here. You just have to sit there and be stonewall. Because there's a, there's an expectation for you to mind your business. Amen. Um, There's an expectation for you not to help. Um, Don't get in their business. You don't know what's going on. Amen. Um, you know, so so there's a lot of different expectations that is anti-human that, that that is forced on you. I think that PTSD there should be a a, a separate diagnosis for 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 the people that have done long-term um, uh, uh, prison time uh, because it, it is different, like you said. But um, being in prison and being innocent um, was something that was on my mind every single day. Mm-hmm. not dying in prison um, um never having um, established a legacy that will live longer than me um dying in prison and and all my daughter has ever known is me being in prison um dying in prison about a ramen noodle soup or about nothing <laughs> um, those things are on your mind all the time um but every time that I experience some sort of adversity, um, some sort of, um, um, you know, unpleasant experience, whether it's with officers um, or whatever, you know, some some unjustified, um, you know, struggle or difficulty, um, always like, you know, here I go dealing with something that I shouldn't even be dealing with at all. Um, but I can't react a certain way. Because I don't even want to look like somebody that belongs here. You know, so 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 my struggle uh, was different. Now, you know, I spent 20 years in prison. It's been, you know, I've had to I've had to get busy on many occasions. Um, you know, I don't care how um, how disciplined you are or how you're trying to do your time. You do 20 years in prison. You know, you're going to mix it up. Um um, in that 20 years, you know, you're in an environment where, you know, everybody is not in their right frame of mind. Um, hmm. Prison is prison is the place where all the bullies are. It's filled with bullies. It's filled with um, um, a lot of people that got an angle. 
Like you may get approached several times a day, every single day with someone with an angle with something. Sometimes you may benefit. (laughs) Sometimes you may not, you know, but, um, you know, so, so, so when you're in that type of environment where you're surrounded by uh, mm-hmm. desperation, you're surrounded by the bullies, you're surrounded with people that couldn't function in a normal social environment, so they found them, th- themselves in prison. Mm-hmm. Whether you're supposed to be there or not, um, you're going you're gonna to clash uh, with people that's, that wakes up with intentions on clashing with anybody. Amen. And and that's a very good point. So on that, let me ask you, what is your culpability in all of this, Marvin? How after if 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 you have, which I can tell that you're a man of reflection, so um you definitely have men of reflection behind you. So reflecting upon maybe why you your your life is in this position, have you ever came to self? At the end of the day and at the end of the road, does it all boil down to the decisions that you were making as a kid, as a teen, and, and just putting yourself in certain positions in life? Um, well, as it relates to this case, I don't believe I have any culpability. However, mm-hmm. I do regret um, not being well studied, not being able to defend myself. Um, you know, like you said, being in the courtroom and not knowing the law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I spent many years beating myself up um, for not knowing as much as the crooked police officers that devised um, um, schemes uh, that, that affected 20 years of my life. Mm-hmm. So I spent many years beating myself up, um, especially about stuff that I was learning. You know, the years are going by and I'm learning stuff like had I known this back mm-hmm. then. Um, then maybe I wouldn't be sitting in prison right now if I know that they couldn't do this. Um, um, had I known this piece of information that they had hidden, if I knew if I knew about the Freedom Information Act request um, um, that I probably could have started early early on. Um, if, if I knew that um, after 30 days they destroyed 911 tapes, if I could have got this 911 tape um, when I was sitting in the county jail, would that have made a difference? Um, you know, so I beat myself up on a lot of things that I did not know that I believe certain knowledge would have helped me expose the truth um, many years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but would I be the man that I am today had mm-hmm. I exposed the truth 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier or never mm-hmm. having gone through a trial to test me? Um, and never having gone through a prison experience that tested me, um, never having to fight all of those battles in the Court of Appeals, in the Supreme Court, in the federal court, in the federal circuit court. Had I not fought those battles, went through that stress, you know, climbed those mountains, learned how to read in prison, had mm. I not gone through that, would I be able to help people like I'm helping people today? Mm. Would I be able to stand tall? Would I be the man that I am today? Or would I have died in the streets, not having a legacy, not being even worth putting a face on a Mm T-shirt? So I appreciate the things Mm -hmm. that I've that I've gone through in order to end up right here.
Amen. The struggle that God, the struggle that God gave me, uh, I appreciate it. The, the struggle that He gave me to be an example for others, I appreciate. It. I take that. I can carry that cross. I've carried it. Amen. But 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 and and but and responsibility. That's, well, that's that you hit it on the head, and that's and that's kind of what I'm I'm, I'm talking about is is just culpability of self, not so much as as the event that occurred, but just all the decisions that we've made out of ego, out of selfishness, out of materialism, out of emotions that lead us into these dark, dark alleys of life for, for things to happen to us or around us, you know, and it's, it's like me when I reflected on, on, on mine and it's like, you know, for the longest, I blame the prosecutor. I blame the snitches. I blamed everybody. But at the end of the day, I chose to be in the street. I chose to sell drugs. I chose to put myself in the lion's den, you know, and, and you hit it on the head because now, of lack. Now, now, from a moral standpoint, I agree with you 100 percent. Right. But from a but from a legal standpoint. No, no, I'm talking I'm talking about being in the streets don't give didn't didn't justify them um, overcharging you or lying in order to get a conviction um, or, or charging you with something that they should never charge you with. Well, what it they is, still have, they still have an ethical duty to do the right thing, to do the truthful thing. Amen. And they don't. Right. And that's the thing is that is that the, the point is you, you're, you're doing so well in helping me make my point is that we you and I and so many of us, because of the oppressive state that our government puts on us, the poor, we are making emotional, irrational decisions our whole lives until we until we make that consciousness, you know, until we come into consciousness that we're making these these irrational decisions because of the oppressive state that the government puts on its poor people and it allows them to take advantage of our trauma, our abuse that we've had growing up and the mistakes that we've made. I was breaking in the houses at 13 years old. And not only was I just breaking in the houses, but I was a, I was a mastermind at it at 13. I'm, I'm planning these things out. And I, I, I did like 20 houses, 18 houses, some crazy thing. And it, it wasn't that I was a criminal. I was just a kid. And I was just looking for attention you know and i didn't no matter what i was doing as a kid i just wasn't being noticed and and i got into this and that didn't make me a criminal but yet the system took advantage of me that did not try to help me and as you said you were a troubled kid you were got you got into to issues and and there was no system in place to spot that and help that before an incident occurred that resulted you because of your, your, uh, what do you say? Your, your reputation with the police or whatever resulted in you going to prison for 20 years of your life as an innocent man that had nothing to do with, with this, this crime whatsoever. So, but like you said, it's the education. It was the not knowing, not knowing that what they were doing wasn't right. Not knowing how to research properly. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that as well. I'm guilty of not knowing. I'm guilty of being completely ignorant through my trial, you know, 
And I feel that I probably could have beat my trial if I would have been a little bit more educated. So my culpability falls in the fact that I was just ignorant of so many things. And that's what helped me become unignorant in prison and change because I did not want to be ignorant and I didn't see myself as an ignorant person. But yet I was doing ignorant things. You know, my initial fuel that I that I really used to grow um, um, in prison was um, I didn't want um, the, the, the team of people that used lies um, to be able to outthink me with lies. You know, so, so that really like fueled me to, mm-hmm. to to learn as much truth as I could learn as much procedure as I could um, to learn. Um, you know, even to this day, I've been out over a year now, and I'm still trying to figure out things about this case that was hidden or I didn't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure things out about this case. You know, the Conviction and Integrity Unit um, led by Valerie Newman, uh, which is the director of the, of, the, of the Conviction and Integrity Unit in Wayne County under the leadership and prosecutor um, Kim Worthy. Um, they found out a lot. You know, they were able to um, uh, really uh, um, use their unlimited resources pretty much, you know, they have, you know, in comparison to somebody like me, be able to hire a lawyer and private investigator, you know, they br- was able to bring their talent and find out a lot. Uh, but I know it's still more there. Um, and since I started off trying to figure things out, I've been out of prison over a year and I'm still trying to figure things out. Um, you know, because that, that, that led to my freedom you know, finding out truth, finding out things that were hidden. Um, you know, there were, um, the prosecutor office, they outlined like 12 different Brady violations in my case. And those are just the ones that they were able to find, you know, or the ones that, that, that made it into um, um, the, the, the recommendation. And, and, and for your viewers that don't know what a, a Brady violation is, um, you almost have to have some sort of either a, be a lawyer or have spent time in prison to know what a Brady violation is. Um, but a Brady violation is where they hide um, favorable evidence or evidence that you could have used in your own defense from you. So when they turn over your file to your attorneys um, with all of the things in the case, um, 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 anything that they withhold, especially things that they withhold that you could have used as a defense, mm-hmm. um, they didn't turn over. That's what a Brady violation is. And um, in my case, they pointed out at least 12 things. I believe it's more because, you know, don't know everything. I'm still trying to figure things out. Um, but, but, but that's a lot. You know, cases get overturned for one Brady violation. Well, sure. Absolutely. I'm dealing with that now in another case out of Mississippi with an individual um, who they withheld DNA evidence clearing him of this murder until he pled out. They were applying the pressure on him. They had his wife down at the station in handcuffs. They had they saying that they were going to take his children away and, unless he just pled out to this manslaughter. He pled out to it knowing that they had DNA evidence clearly showing that he wasn't involved in this case. And now this is, this is the kicker now. So now when he's trying to get in 
you you already know how hard it is to get in on appeal when you plea. It's 99% impossible. But he got in and under the the argument that the date of the DNA was 4 days before his plea. They're but they're saying that he was aware of that. They're saying that it was given to him, he was aware of it and he still chose to plea. But it's like to me, it's it, when is the court going to sit back? When would a judge sit back and say, you know what? That's just irrational to me. Why, young man, would you want to plead to a to a manslaughter that, you know, you're not guilty of and, you know, there's DNA evidence that's that clears you. Why would you want to plead to that? There's none of that. They're like, OK, he wants to plead. All right. Bye. See you later. And now and now he's stuck in prison. He's been in prison nine years on a 20 year charge. But this is rampant. It happens. It's, this is not exclusive. It's not exclusive to you or to Mujin or, or a small percentage. It's like they're doing it to whoever they can get away with. You know, and, and it may not even be that this person is innocent. Yeah. Maybe he's guilty, but they're just stacking charges on him. It's, it's, a, it's a culture of, um, you know, in the judicial system, the, the criminal justice system, there's a, a culture of, you know, win by any means. Um, you know, the prosecutors are supposed to be champions of justice. And, and, and justice, you know, cuts straight down the middle. Um, it may cut you and it may not cut you. And if it doesn't cut you, um, a prosecutor shouldn't be trying to slant the blade in order to cut you as if that's justice. Um, and in America, there's a culture of, you know, every, we, we got our favorite football teams. We got our favorite ba- basketball teams, our favorite baseball teams. You got your favorite sorority. You got your favorite political party. Um, you know, what city you from? My city better than yours. What state you from? My state better than yours. Um, um, what kind of car you drive? I drive a GM. You That Ford ain't nothing. There's a culture of um, narcissism in America. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in the criminal justice system, Justice is supposed to cover every American. If you do something wrong, you get cut by that blade, that 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 judicial blade coming down. That's blind justice. That yeah, absolutely is blind. And if you mm-hmm. do nothing wrong, you should not get cut. You should not suffer the consequence that is not yours. Um, but in America, prosecutors are taking sides. You know, and, and the prosecutor wants to be on the winning side, the numbers. They want to get the numbers. They want to get the convictions. Well, this person didn't do it. Well, uh, okay. Uh, well, he still got to plead out to something. We have reduced it. No, why would you want to plead to somebody, plead a case that you know they didn't do it, but you want to keep the conviction? Mm-hmm. You want them to walk away on probation, uh, opposed to throwing the entire case out because. You know, or a police officer does something wrong or evidence wasn't collected right. Instead of doing what the law requires you to do, you're still trying to find a way to keep the number. You know, um, and and that's a problem in our culture. Um, You know, we pick numbers. uh, We we choose money over over life and liberty. We choose um, um, we choose the frivolous 
the things that won't matter in a hundred years over the things that matters forever. Mm. You're absolutely correct. And this is the same message I preach is the narcissism of our country, man. And, and, and I believe, <clears throat> I believe media is doing this to us. I believe technology is doing this to us because there's no proper training. And, and I believe that it's the agenda, you know, because, because we can't have a nation of 330 million United Americans. We can't have that. The government can't have that. Right. So they have to, they have to keep the vision. They have to keep the, the, the United States divided into groups, small pockets that they could manage. And they do that in so many different ways, as you articulated through sports, you know what I mean? Through cities, just through all of this marketing that they put out there and, and, and so many different ways, fashion wise, keeping up with the Joneses, everything is making us think that materialism is important in our lives before anything else. You know, as Americans, as Americans, we have to, um, determine what's important to us um we really have to take a look because if we if we continue um in the direction that things are going um you know what condition would this country you know be in what kind of what kind of country are we passing to our grandchildren our great-grandchildren so 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 we have to unify at the very least we have to unify around what is right you know what what are you what is right you know, what are those things that every American should have? You know, I think the founders did a great job in constructing the Constitution. Um, uh, but that that has to be equally applied to everyone. And if you find yourself, um, and I'm not being accusatory to anyone, but if you find yourself um, denying someone um, 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 their constitutional rights, and thinking that it, and thinking that that you should enjoy yours, but they shouldn't enjoy theirs, mm-hmm. then you know you've fallen on the wrong side of being an American. You know, like like um, you know you, you you grew up in the neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. um, you see the way police interactions are in the community. Constitutional rights. What? Mm-hmm. You bet. You bet. Not even. Um, 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 use the word constitution in an interaction with a police officer in the hood, especially if there's no camera phone around, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, three or four of your rights may get inv- get violated right then. You know, you don't have freedom of speech in an interaction with police, which you're supposed to, you know, um, they say what they want to say, which they not supposed to have freedom of mm-hmm. speech when they had a uniform on. Cause that uniform, the, the constitution isn't for the government. It's a restraint on the government for the people. Mm-hmm. The Constitution belongs to the people. Mm-hmm. The government is supposed to defend it as it relates to what's best for the people. So we have freedom of speech. They don't, not why they have that uniform on. Mm-hmm. You the know, representatives. the right. Absolutely. So, so the rights that, that, that are afforded there is, is, is for the people. No, I mean, that's that's exactly it. And this is I'm, I'm so glad that you said that, because this is what the people have to understand. Exactly what Marvin said. What I've been saying is we. It's it's our fault. It's nobody's fault, but our fault. And, and how is our fault is because 
none of us hardly even know what the constitution is you know what i mean we we know that we have rights we throw oh i have rights i have rights okay well what rights do you have do you really know what your rights are and most people can't get past that question so it leads to the police violating us constantly it leads to the courts violating us constantly because our government is on its own agenda and they're keeping us distracted away from our rights this is one of the things i get into immigration about because you have individuals that are coming here from other countries right that are are in most part socialistic countries and these people have have been raised and grown in a socialistic mindset and they're coming here without understanding what the true essence and nature of what our constitution is so like you said you'll have somebody saying you know don't want them this person to to you know explore their rights but they want their rights to to be respected but they don't even understand that they're violating somebody's rights you don't even understand that you're violating somebody's rights essentially when you block somebody on social media that's that this is what's driving us to do that you know what i mean because we get in the habit of oh you know what i don't like what this person said block see you later and right. i don't we even have to live in a, a a cancel culture a cancel you know? culture and that's the narcissism within a us culture. that's the narcissism within us technology done that to us it got us used to blocking people when we don't like what they say and shutting people down when we don't like what they say you know and i got i'm, I'm going to post on on the video but you're the twitter you know and i want to deal with some of that as well because you've been home a year now and you're you you've been speaking a lot like you're a busy busy dude you know what i'm saying so amidst of all of that you're still even though what you've been through and all you're doing is just speaking your experiences you still get hate how, how yeah yeah you, you know um you know some of the things i love to do i speak at a lot of universities mm -hmm. and i love i love to speak to the students i love because uh, i speak to a lot of law students and i know that they're getting ready to go off into um an arena where they're going to be you know turning the wheels of the system so i love to be able to really um connect with them before they get tainted in the system um so, so i'm talking about that like my fulfillment comes from doing that right there mm. um um I, I get a lot of hate and 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 I'm okay with that because I know it has mm. nothing to do with me. Um, you know the way somebody feels and the way somebody looks at me. I know it has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with them. Um, I don't put a, I don't give a lot of attention to to mm -hmm. hate. Um, um, because I wouldn't be able to do all the things that I'm doing now if I divide my energy. Um, or, or pull over to everything I see as I'm traveling to my destination. I never make it to my destination if I'm pulling over to address everybody that looks at my car. You know, even if I'm accepting compliments, I can't pull over and say, oh, you like my car? If I did that on the way to my destination, um, I would never make it there. Mm -hmm. um, and I apply that same rule to um, the different things that I come. Sometimes I post the hate because it's important for me to, to let people know hey this is out there depending on depending on how it comes 
you know, jealousy stuff like that. I don't, I really don't, you know, address that. But I'm specifically, do you know, do you know the Twitter I'm talking about? Um, the one that you uh, posted a couple of days ago where he said, uh, you're yeah. better off in jail. Yes. So, you know, it, you know, the reason, the reason I, the reason I shared that is because, you know, by looking at my social media, you see all the things that I'm into. Um, I, I think, I think I'm making the world a better place and I don't, I don't care who you are. I don't think you can think anything different. So for him to say what he said, lets me know that what I'm doing, he has a problem with, you know, he has a problem with me um, trying to make the community better. He has a problem with me trying to make the the justice system better. Mm -hmm. Um, You follow me. I don't attack anybody personally. You know, I think I'm, I think I, I think I got the type of mouth that if I wanted to tear people apart, I think I probably can build a pretty successful career um, um, really, you know, ripping people, ripping people apart. I think I can do that. And I think a lot of people will probably support that. But I don't use myself in that way. So for him to, you know, take that position, um, you know, it was like, like, wow. So I wanted to share with everybody, like, this is the thinking that's out there. You know, you got a lot of people that, um, um, wish I was in prison so that I wouldn't be out here uh, waking people up. Doing what they can't do, you know, and that's, and that's, that's the thing is, is uh, I receive a lot of hate, you know, and it's, it's, it's refreshing to me. I even made an episode, you know, how to deal with your haters because knowing that I have people hating on me is knowing that I'm doing things the right way. You know what I mean? That I'm doing things the right way because I understand envy. I understand jealousy. And when you're coming at me with something that has no facts, it's just an emotional statement like you're better off in jail. That's to me is just hate. You know? It's just, it's just hate. So to me, it's refreshing because I'm like, dang, man, you know. I'm, I'm doing the right thing and it's pissing people off because one thing, Marvin, you're a man of history. I know that you are. What has happened to truth tellers throughout history? Well, you know, especially in the face of, um, you know, environments that their truth threatens the integrity of that environment. Um, you know, those truth tellers have been sacrificed. They have been murdered. They have been outcasted. Um, um, outcast. They have been um, uh, uh, their, their character assassinated. You know, um, th- there's there's no easy path for, for someone that's willing to, to speak truth to power. Mm. There's no easy path. So so if you desire to do the right thing in this world, just know that you're going to have to accept that coming in that, you know, the people that know you are not going to help you. Uh, The people that should support you is not going to support you. Um, The community that you come from are not going to get behind you the way that you think they should. It's going to be people that you don't know. It's going to be other cities going to get behind you. It's going to be um, people that you don't know that's going to support you, but you're going to experience opposition. The more truth you tell, um, because truth is judgment. When, when, when you tell somebody the truth, you're putting them at a crossroad to where they have to accept that truth and change, 
or deny that truth and continue along the path that they on. So when you confront somebody with truth, you're actually threatening the direction that their life is going. You set yourself up as opposition mm. by being a truth teller, but you have to be willing um, to even change yourself when you're telling somebody else the truth. Because, you you know, judgment, when you, when you speak truth, you're judging the situation, but you're judging yourself at the same time, too. You, well, that's, you that's, the, that's the truth, truth. That's yeah. the truth, truth. When somebody's speaking the truth, truth, they're speaking of the truth of themselves. And it resonates, as you said, through, through our actions. You know, it's like you say, it's like you said that you feel like you're, you're making the world a better place. And, and how you're doing mm -hmm. that, partner, is, again, through self. This is, again, what I want all my listeners and everybody to understand. When people say, well, what can I do? What can I do? Be a better person. Because by you being a better person, you're making the world a better place. It's just that simple. You know, so that's why I'm trying. I recognize the errors of my way. I recognize the manipulative ways I looked at life, the narcissism within me. I've recognized so many of my materialistic ways that I'm cognizant of most of them throughout my day. So when I, at the end of the day, when I sit back and I reflect, you know, you know what, man, I was a 7-Eleven. I always use this example, but I was a 7-Eleven and I knew somebody was coming in behind me and I purposely didn't hold the door for them. I reflect on things like that. You know what I mean? Because I knew that I could have been a better person in that moment. And it's the little things like that is what makes our world a better place. Right. And, when, and when you look at it, you know, um, even, you know, the consequences of it. Um, when, when, when you when you do an act of kindness or, or positivity, you may save somebody's life that you come in contact with. You don't know don't what they know it. with. You don't know what they're carrying. And, 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 and just the thought of, uh, you know, of what you've uh, done to impact their life in a, a very small way. It may be insignificant to you, but it may be the thing that saves somebody from committing suicide. Or save somebody from going into their house with an attitude. Anything. Anything. You know, anything. You know? And this is, this is my reason in, in giving. You know, uh, uh, if I have, and I don't have much, you know what I mean? But if I have $2 sitting in my center console and I see a homeless person on the side of the road and I give this person these $2, right? I'm not thinking about whether I'm going to give this $2 to this man because, oh, they're going to just go buy some dope. Oh, they're just going to go buy some alcohol. It's not my concern. My concern is just giving. I have it here. It's sitting there in my center console and I'm giving it to this person because maybe that drink will save their life. You know what I mean? Maybe it's, it's not up to me to decide what this person should do with this $2 that I'm giving it because then I'm not giving from the heart. I'm giving with intention. So it's those. It's just like you just said. It's just it's just the act of giving. You know what I mean? And being in that and knowing that it's going to come back to you every time, every time I'm, I'm, I got to a point to where I'm like, well, you know, dang, my, my subscriptions is growing slow. I don't even really know if my programs are really even that good. I'm seeing, you know, these other channels and they're blowing up They're 10, 15,000 subs growing and all of these things. And, and I started doubting my message, but within that, Within a couple of days, homie, no lie, I just started getting an onslaught of mm -hmm. positive, 
reaffirmations from people all over the place. Just, man, we, we love what you're doing. You, we appreciate just an onslaught that reaffirmed what I was doing. And it was all because I started doubting myself. But again, I still had faith. I knew that I was, I was doing the right thing. And, and the, the point of that is, even when we get in, 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 in solitary confinement, and you're sitting there and you're by yourself for two months and no interaction. And you start to just really doubt whether life is worth living. Things come your way, whether you recognize them or not, just to show you like, hey, man, just have faith in yourself. You went through 20 years of prison, innocent. You know, hell, I went through 13 years guilty of, of, of selling drugs, not what they say, but guilty of, of being that type of person, you know, and. That shit was hard on me, man. After five years, I'm like, man, I, I, I still got another 13 to go. Like, what the frig did I get into, man? You did 20 years. Innocent. Yeah, on a, on, a, on a natural life sentence. A natural life sentence without the possibility of parole. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to take 20 years. <laughs> uh to establish and prove my innocence. I didn't, I didn't know it was going to take 20 years. Um, but I, but I always knew that I wasn't going to be in prison for the rest of my life. Me too. I knew I wasn't going to do all that time. I got out on the two levels when Obama was leaving, when he came with the two levels for a uh, first time nonviolent wow. drug offender. So it knocked four years off me. And the way that that happened, homie was a blessing in itself because I got that, that news on my mother's birthday. December 9th. So, 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 so when you got that news, I remember sitting in a prison cell watching the news um, uh, when it happened. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm still in the midst. And and, and I remember being so happy um, and excited because I knew um, the lives that it was going to change. You have no idea. You have no idea. With, with those numbers, I said, it's, it's a lot of conscious people that's about to get out of prison at one time. You know, it's about to be an influx of consciousness into the communities. The community need this. You know, now a lot of people probably wasn't looking at it like that. Um, you know, but that's that was my initial thought. So I'll share the story with you. So the two, the two levels came out and I was already in the midst of getting uh, com a commutation. I've already spoken with the pardon attorney out of DC. She's already, she said that, um, that she's already reviewed my case. I was a shoe in for the commutation and, and that I should have never got that much time. The only reason why I got that much time was because I went to trial and such. I mean, the, 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 the kingpin in my case got eight years. He went from life down to eight years. That's how many people he told on, but it was, it was, it was a day I was on my way to the weight pile, man. And it was eight o'clock in the morning. I go from eight to 10 every day. And my, my case manager was crossing me on the path named Tyson. And he said, Harold, he said, when you get back in, come see me. So I'm like, okay, I'm thinking this has something to do with the commutation or whatever. So I go work out, blah, blah, blah. But I'm anxious to get back in. So I come back in, shower. I go sit down in his office. Now, mind you, like I say, it's December 9th. It's my mother's birthday. And I haven't called her yet. So I'm sitting in, in his office and, and um, I'm like, Tyson, what's up? 
So he's like, man, I got some, I got some bad news and I got some good news. He said, what you want to hear first? I said, well, you know, you know me, Tyson. So let's start with the bad first and get that out of the way. So he's like, well, the bad news is, is you got denied for your commutation. I said, what you mean I got denied? I said, I just talked to the lady two weeks ago. She said I was a shoe-in. What you mean I got? Now I'm getting heated because, again, as you know, I know that you know, there's so many highs and lows in prison. Uh-huh. You, you get to think that, man, I got these people and they got to let me go. And then they come back and shoot you down in a, in a paragraph. You know what I mean? So there was so many of those. And, and this here, I was, like you say, on guard against good news. Like, man, I don't, I'll believe it when these people let me out this gate. That's the point that I'm at. I don't believe nothing you say till you let me out of this gate and got me on the bus home. But I was so believing. So when he hit me with that, it devastated me, you know? And he's like, well, he said, but this is the good news. He said, the good news is I went ahead and filed for your two levels, right? And he said, that is the reason why they denied your commutation because they granted the two levels. So I'm like, okay, well, I knew about the two levels, but I didn't deal with it because I knew I had the commutation going. If the commutation didn't work, then I knew I could fall back on the two levels at that time. That's why I didn't mess with it. But he went ahead and filed it. Right. And not only did he file that, but he filed my halfway house and got me nine months halfway house. So he tells me now I still got four years left on my sentence, homie, and I'm tired. Right. I left my daughter at six months old. And the life her mother made it made my prison time. Hell, you know what I mean? With my daughter. And I couldn't my and I'm and my daughter's turning 12 now and I'm seeing her. She's she's skipping school. She's her life is going downhill. And I'm sitting in prison like, how the fuck am I going to save my daughter? I still got four years. She's going to be 18 by the time I get home. I can't reach her at 18. These, this is what I'm going through all of this. So he turns the computer to me. He says, he says, uh, you go home in 90 days. Man, I started crying. I said, Tyson, I said, do not play with my fucking emotions, Tyson. Tyson, don't play with my emotions, Tyson. What do you mean I go home in 90 days? So he explained it to me. It's like, I got you nine months halfway house. You said, you leave March 16th. I said, Tyson, man. I said, you know what today is, man? He's like, what? I say, it's my mom's birthday. I'm gonna go call my mom and wish her a happy birthday, dog. And that was it. And, 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 and I went home and I came home. My daughter was failing. I came home March. She had uh, two months left and she was going to fail. I got with the school. I got with the, the, uh, you know, the, the guidance counselor. I explained to them the whole situation, explained to them that I was home just to pass her and I'll take it from there. They passed her the next year. She was on honor roll the whole year because I promised wow. the school. I promised the school that she, she would change. She was going into eighth grade. I said, she's going to give you. I promise you, that's my word. So that whole eighth grade, she was honor roll. I got her into swimming right? She, she became a competitive swimmer in the high school, honor roll all through high school, didn't miss one day of high school, you know, and it just changed her life, having her father back in her life. You know what I mean? And I'm sure you, you have children. Yes. Yes. And that dynamic in itself is a whole nother conversation that I would love to have with you at another time or just about 
how that how that relationship is going. But you know, as a parent, an innocent person in prison with children, you know the impact of you coming home on them children already, yes? Yeah, absolutely. And what kind of impact has that been? Like in these um, young people, how old are they? Um, well, my daughter, she's 23. Okay. I have a daughter, she's 23. And, um, you know, we, we were able to maintain a pretty tight relationship um, the entire time that I was incarcerated. But you, you, you don't know how well you don't know a person until you're around them more than 15 minutes of phone call. You know, I was Amen. limited to 15 minute phone calls and, you know, I might call back three times, but when you're around somebody um, and, and, and able to see, really, really, really see them, you know, you like, wow, I thought I knew you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but my daughter, she's, she's great. She's an entrepreneur. She's actually in the process of starting her second business. Um, you know, we still talk and text um, um, nearly every day. We just I took her out on a date um, day before yesterday. So um, it, it, it's great. You know, she's 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 so much better than me. She's so much smarter than me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at 23 years old, I, I couldn't hold a, a match to her, you know. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Well, Marvin, man, this has been a great discussion, man. And, and I'm I'm thankful that you're home man. I'm thankful that we have a conscious. A conscious man back home and. And I do appreciate what you've been through mm-hmm. because I appreciate what I've been through and, and the fact that it created what it created. And I'm a firm believer that I went through what I went through to, to provide the messages that I do now because I wouldn't be able to articulate in the fashion that I do without those experiences, you know, and maybe this is what God had for me, you know, and maybe it's what he had for you. It's just, it's just understanding, like I say, our culpability and our actions every day. When something goes wrong, just not be so quick to to blame somebody else, but just ask ourselves, like, what did I do wrong here? Always start with self. Check self first. This is always my message. And make sure that we understand, we the people, understand that we are being led to make emotional decisions day in and day out with the distractions of football, basketball, sports, competition, constantly competing with your neighbors, your coworkers, just constant competition, constant emotions, constant reaction to these emotions is what's leading us into killing our coworkers, killing our wives, beating our women, beating, beating our men, beating our children, just constant, constant, reaction to the emotions that we're being placed in so before we make a decision just stop and ask ourselves is this an emotional decision or is this a rational decision you know and let's take back our country let's figure out how as as mr marvin has as i have both coming from prison right i don't know what you had coming home but i didn't have anything I built all of this by myself. And I keep saying that so people understand that they can do this too. They can stand up in their community and build us a small little podcast or a channel for a community outreach for your community. If you have issues in your community, build an outreach, start something, do something 
to gather people, make them stronger and help understand that don't hate this man. Don't hate me because of the mistakes that I've made, but understand that I have had issues. I've had trauma. I have issues and I need help. And let's help one another be a strong community so that we can take back our country with unity. Number and powers. Nobody knows that like a prisoner. You know, no number and power. So Marvin, thank you, man. And God bless you, partner, for the things that you've been through. God bless you for the strength that you have. And God bless you for the for the, the consciousness that you allowed yourself to come into going through what you went through. You could have came home and been a stone cold killer like, man, bump that. You guys took my life. Now I'm taking lives. But you chose to be who you are today. And, and I thank you for that. Yeah, I like to say I'm better better not broken that's why i named my company better not broken llc beautiful um you know so people can find me www.betternotbrokenllc.org um or on facebook marvin cotton jr um or just the same twitter handle as well absolutely man so you take care many blessings to you man and i hope that the rest of your life is as prosperous as can be man you don't deserve to have to lift a finger for nothing sit home and relax and enjoy yourself, partner. Absolutely. And um, I make my way down to Florida. I make sure that I, I reach out to you first. No question, man. No question. Tampa, Champion Bay. I'll take you around. We'll hang out, do what we do, man. And, and, um, and I got some ideas, man. I really got some ideas that I want to share with the right people because I know it's going to make an impact on our children. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm working over here, too, mm-hmm. man. I'm working down here in the bottom. And just formulating things and you're doing what you're doing. And I got people in New York doing what they're doing. And hopefully one day here soon, we can bring all of these organizations together and just make one powerful unit, man, that just is not to be jacked with. You know what I'm saying? So take care of yourself, Marvin. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, man. It's an honor to meet you. Thank you for for being on and, and I appreciate you and just keep keep doing what you do, partner. So...